Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. Hey, everybody, this is Bill. And this is Hillary. From Sounds of the World podcast. And we just want to remind you that if you live in the United States, to make sure to get registered to vote. Um, November 3rd is election day. In these states, the September goes into October. September goes into October. Uh, registration to be dates are expiring soon. So make sure that you check your state official rules, get registered to vote, and make sure you go out to vote. Uh, this is a pivotal election for everybody. So make sure that you do this. This is our civic duty. It's so, so important. You may feel like your voice doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Let your voice be heard. Get your ass out there and go vote. <laughs> yeah, do it. And after you're done, go get some beer. <laughs> All right, welcome back everybody to another episode of Sounds of the World. Today's a special day. Uh, first off, a couple things. We've had a couple people ask, we do have a Patreon now. So if you wanna donate as little as a dollar, help us out. Uh, we are independently funded and out of our own pockets to get this going. So any help would be great. Uh, you'll have access to extended interviews, uh, free merch when we get this going. Um, and a few other things that uh, we want to keep a surprise for everyone who wants to join Patreon. Uh, it is also International Podcast Day. So congratulations to everyone who's a podcaster and who's working on it. Uh, my big heroes are the Wine and Crime gals. Uh, today is also actually Amanda from Wine and Crime's birthday. So happy birthday! So, okay, enough with the plugging. Uh, so on today's episode... We have a distinct honor to speak with a composer who's from Japan, but he now resides in Germany. I met this composer while I was in Krakow, Poland, attending a performance that included a work from each of us. We stayed at the same hostel and just talked about life, music, and traveling while eating vast amounts of pierogies, who, which are delicious. Uh, his works are described to, quote, engage in repetitive patterns of sound motives, which aims for the slightest change in the pattern to act as an accent and as a flared infotainment playground. I love that one, infotainment playground. He was born in Osaka, Japan, but spent his formative years in Singapore. He received his professional diploma in piano performance with high honors at 12 and began studying computer music and composition with Chintaro Imai and Motoharu Kawashima at the 
Kunatachi College of Music in Tokyo. He graduated with the Arama Prize, which is the highest recognition for a graduating class. He then went on to receive his MFA from Columbia in New York City, where he studied with Brad Garten and Zosha de Gastri at the Computer Music Center. He's since gone on to study at the Hawk School for Music, Carl Maria von Weber, under the tutelage of Marc Andre, Stefan Prince, and Jorn Peter Heichel. In 2016, he was the first prize winner of the Malta International Composition Competition. His music has gone on to be performed worldwide. He's also the active researcher in the compositional approaches of the show and has conducted numerous lectures and demonstrations of, regarding the notation and extended techniques of this ancient Japanese instrument at such universities as Cornell, Manhattan School of Music, the University of Hawaii Manoa, Conservatorio de Puerto Rico, and many, many more. Today, we're gonna to talk about this fascinating instrument, the show, and how to fuse together its traditions with contemporary music. It's a great honor to be able to talk with him today. Please welcome Chitori Shimizu. Hello. Thank you so much, Chitori, for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's quite the, the background. <laughs> it's so, you're, to me, it sounds like such a, a big, lofty background, and yet you're still so personable and easy to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. First off, like we were born in Osaka, and mm -hmm. then uh, how long did you live in Singapore? <clears> hmm. <throat> so, um, I actually spent my formative years in Thailand and Singapore. And oh, okay. Yeah, I returned to Japan for high school and college. Quite a long time in Singapore, yeah? Yeah. Mm. yeah. And uh, about six years in Tokyo, then moved to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, before moving to Dresden in Germany, which is where I am now. My life has been just constant moving. <laughs> Movement's good. I mean, you've seen so mm -hmm. much of the world so far, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I really think that I've had the privilege to actually, you know, see many parts of the world and experience a lot of different cultures. Right. And mm. I hear Singapore is, is amazing. It's such a big city-state pretty much, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's quite diverse. Um, you know, the weather's very nice. It's a very, I very good country to grow up in, I think. So it says you got your piano at 12, right? So did you start piano super young? Yeah. Um, so I started piano when I was four years old. And um, I got my piano, professional piano diploma when I was 12. Wow. Yeah. But after that, something kind of snapped in me. Um, you know? <laughs> so I was really um, trained in a very rigorous way um, in the piano performance. I had to practice every day for hours in front of the piano and stuff. So, yeah, after I got my professional diploma, I kind of drifted away from piano. Yeah, perhaps you, you know, the feeling, you know, during your teenage years, you kind, you kind of have this rebel phase. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I was... I mean, that's completely understandable. Um, my God, you had your professional piano diploma at 12. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, if you've done it all by 12, you got to go somewhere else too, right? <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> and so was it, was it from piano that you, like the boredom of piano, you kind of got interested in other things or in composition or how did composition come into the picture? How did composition come into the picture? <laughs> so um, I was a very quiet kid. 
uh, perhaps I can put it this way, definitely not one of the popular ones. In fact, I think I've always been having issues with people, you know, either somebody else bullying me and stuff like that. But that aside, um, as I said, I had one thing that I could do, which nobody else could really do, which is playing the piano. So um, one time I received this opportunity to play the piano in front of the whole school and then started to notice that although I'm, I was bad at talking to people at that time, I could create the starting point of a conversation through music. So, you know, I started digging deeper into this. Um, I started to, I was kind of bored with playing classical music, to be honest. Um, so I started yeah. to improvise on the piano. But I noticed that when you improvise on the piano, it's like a one-time thing. If you don't record it or if you don't notate it, you're never going to play the same improvisation again in your life. Right. So then I started studying music theory, notation, um, you know, recording techniques and stuff. And that's the beginning where I started to get into composition. And so was this kind of hybridizing electronic music and piano or was electronic music on your radar already? Yeah, so I've always been um, like a computer geek. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I loved computers and um, I loved not so much the hardware part, but the software part. Yeah, I thought it was cool to, I thought it was really cool that you could create sound from nothing. That's where I started to get into computer music. So yeah, I studied computer music um, in in my bachelor's degree in college and in grad school too, in the sound arts program at Columbia. So what type of computer music did you get into? Like music concrete, like working with recordings and manipulating those, or were you more interested in like synthesizing your own music and creating your own sounds? Hmm. So, um, or a little bit of both. <laughs> I know they go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. It's a mixture of everything. I should say in my undergraduate studies, I, studied Max and SP in depth, which... Oh, I loved Max in college. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I, I don't remember anything from <laughs> my undergraduate years. I remember years, loving but... it at the moment, but <laughs> after, after I was done with it, it was like, oh, I don't, I don't remember how to do any of that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. <laughs> but to be honest, um, right now, I don't really work with computer music. Um, I don't really make pure electronic music, because... Um, after after getting exposed to a lot of electronic or computer music for years, I've started to notice when I hear different works, um, I can hear which software they're using, which plugins they're using. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah. So right now I'm trying to dig deeper into the instrumental um, composition, which is probably like the opposite path that composers take <laughs> yeah you must have heard a lot to be able to decipher between max msp and all those other ones i mean six years in school is a long time <laughs> i feel like they they have to be designed in a certain way where you hear one of those works and you go okay there's no way this was done in a daw like this had to be triggered randomly or mm -hmm. by some programming um I think that really lends well over into instrumental music, though, because I think you get a lot of valuable training in these different 
mindsets. Okay, how can I create this world um, with the tools that I have? What notation do I need to use? Um, I think it translates quite well. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I really think so too. So the first time that I really could tell um, which software or which plugin they were using in an electro electronic music that I heard was that, um, do you guys know the Ircom verb? I, yeah, Ircom, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there yes. are a lot of um, reverbs um, that people can use. Um, there are preset reverbs on Pro Tools, on Logic. Um, but uh, there's this really expensive um, plugin called the Ircom verb where Ircom um, developed. I really liked the sound of it. Of course, I couldn't afford it myself, so I used it. Um, I used to use it um, on my school computer. And just yeah. so anyone is curious, IRCOM is the Institute for Research in Computer and Acoustic Music in Paris, France. It's by the 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 Centre Pompidou uh, and the Stravinsky Fountain in uh, old like downtown Paris. It's amazing. So you're able to hear the IRCOM verb, and then what happened like later on? So you were able to, uh, then you started inputting acoustic music in your and electronic music in your own way, or what happened? Um, so for instrumental music, I feel like there's so much more to explore. I know that some some composers, especially younger composers, they say that all of the techniques or all of the um, compositional styles are already drained mm. by previous composers. But I don't really think so. Um, I think there's a lot that we can still find in different instruments, not just European orchestral instruments, but, you know, orchestra uh, instruments around the world too. Yeah, I mean, that was always a thought I had was as I was writing, it's like, is this just rehashing someone else, you know, or mm. like, how far can I really push the violin or the flute? So, and yeah. so yeah, I think every composer has that, that moment where you're, you want to be new and creative mm -hmm. and different, but at some point I think you can be new and creative and different within the same boundaries. Cause I feel like a lot of us feel like we have to push these boundaries to get on the mm -hmm. map or to create music that'll be heard, but mm -hmm. you can really do a lot. I really like what you're saying because I feel like you can do a lot with what's already been done, mm -hmm. but you can hash it in a way that's unique to you or maybe highlight something that hasn't been highlighted before. Perhaps it's been seen, but perhaps it hasn't been highlighted or discovered mm. with air quotes um, mm. in a way that you, you have a visual on it. And uh, this might sound like a counter interview to you guys, but do you guys think that um, we as composers, we must always produce something new? Because I'm also debating myself on that. Um, I mean, the definition new is a very controversial term, I think. I mean, anyone can argue what new means. So... Yeah, as composers, um, what do you guys think? I think I love. I think it was Steve Reich that said it. Um, there's still plenty of good music to be composed in the key of C. <laughs> mm. I think I don't know. I think new is kind of where you have to draw your drop your definition. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe in my mind, I'm thinking of good music or music that mm. I'd like to hear. Um, but I still think I don't think you always have to go for something new. I think you can kind of create something that has been already done, but do it mm -hmm. super well mm -hmm. and maybe put your own spin on it. Um, that would make me want to listen or tune mm -hmm. in and be like, Oh, you know, I've heard 
this style before, but I've never heard it quite like that. Mm. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I was thinking too, is that like uh, new is such a, you know, abstract idea. Mm. Uh, so for me, I might be writing in sonata form or in like, I just finished two pieces that was like a Tarantella, uh, a Takata, like they're old forms, mm. but I used my own aesthetic and my own techniques and manipulated it in a different mm. way that still achieves those kinds of standardized ideas of what a Takata or a, a Tarantella is. Mm. Mm. So I think if you were always creating something new, even if it's, on the footprints of old things. I feel like some composers um, or some musicians, um, when they say, when they use the term new, um, they're actually referring to this um, movement of finding beauty, beauty in parentheses, of course, but finding beauty in the, in the destruction of the Western traditional theoretical structures. For mm. example, noise music or um, free jazz i think that's cool like finding beauty in the destruction of the traditional western theoretical structures that could be something new too but uh i also feel that we don't have to we don't have to create new music in this path too like this isn't the only path yes i like yeah. wholeheartedly agree with that <laughs> so is that when you started bringing, introducing the show or was the show something you had always been interested in or? Yeah. So um, I really had this big privilege um, to study with Mayumi Miyata, who is the pioneer to bring show into uh, contemporary music. Yeah. She's really um, my hero. <laughs> and um, in college, she was the, she was the she was my professor for sure. Okay. So um aside from the traditional repertoires in Gagaku, which is the Japanese court music, um I could really talk to her a lot about um show in the context of Western art music too. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um my pursuit of the show in the context of Western art music, um using show in composition, it started when I was in my undergrad in Tokyo. Maybe you could just describe what the show looks like for our listeners too. Cause I mean, I think I've, I've read somewhere that they call it like a large mouth organ, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, maybe you can describe it much more eloquently than Wikipedia can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the show is a Japanese free read um, mouth organ. It's believed that, um, Scholars believe that this instrument um, was imported into Japan from the Tang Dynasty, China, around the 8th century, maybe the 7th to the 8th century. Wow. Through the Korean Peninsula. So in Japan, we call it the Shou. In China, um, in Chinese, they call it the Sheng. And in Korea, it's called the Senghuan. Um, apologies if I'm butchering the pronunciation in other languages. I already butchered the Japanese names. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, it's, uh, it has 17 vertical uh, bamboo pipes, and it's a chord instrument. And you can breathe in or breathe out and create, a, create the same sounds, like a, just like a harmonica or, um, or a church pipe organ. 
And so what drew you to the show in your, in your studies? So um, aside from um, the fact that Mayumi Miyata was teaching at Kunitachi, one of my very close friends in the undergraduate years, he was a foreign student. Uh, he was an exchange student from Denmark. He was actually the one who introduced me to, reintroduced me to the show, I should say. Because um, uh, in reality, in Japan, the traditional instruments are very out of touch from the majority of the public. Yeah, many of the young people, or even I can say the older generations too, um, post-war, older generations, we are really out of touch of the traditional Japanese music, especially the court music. When my Danish friend played this instrument, I, I was like um, really shocked that I haven't rediscovered this instrument. I haven't used this instrument in composition. Yeah, I mean, I so would think... Yeah, so, yeah, I guess that was the start of, um, start of my interest. And then, um, I mean, it's, it's a cool instrument. You said it, it's a chord, like it just it produces chords, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is it optional, like, is there opportunity to create melodic line or is it all kind of just like multiple pitches at once or is it singular Mm. pitches so um on show yes it's possible to play uh individual notes or a melodic line but uh how it's used in the in the traditional repertoires in the court music um most of it is played with chords and that's because of the um, instrumental structure and how, how the fingering is set. It's very, very difficult to play melodic lines on this instrument. So the bamboo uh, pipes, they have holes on them. Now, do the holes like change mm-hmm. the pitch of the pipes and stuff or? So there, each pipe has only one sound. Okay. So there's only 17, there's 17 bamboo pipes on the show, meaning that there, there can be at maximum 17 different pitches. In Gagaku, only 15 of the 17 pipes are equipped with reeds, meaning that only 15 sounds are used in Gagaku. 15 pitches are used in Gagaku. And so how do you control which pipes are played? So you can just place your finger on top of the finger hole, and then you can either breathe in or breathe out, and that makes a sound. Okay. So it's like the, the holes are like the stops on an organ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I would think that, you know, I, had, I was thinking a couple of things where uh, because it's, you, you said it was for Gagaku, the high court kind of music, the art of breathing in and out would make it very almost meditative. Yeah, that, I guess you could, you could say that. Yeah. I mean, mm. couple that with maybe a, like shakuhachi and I mean, what kind of like all in the Gagaku, what were all mm. the instruments involved in this? I mean, so again, it's a chord instrument. Um, so uh, um, the interesting thing is that in a gagaku orchestra, there are um, wind instruments, there are percussion instruments, and there are also string instruments, um, plucked string instruments. And in either European music or you know in jazz, um, in jazz, um, the rhythm section consisting of, let's say, a drum set or a upright bass or a piano. Mm. Um, They're the ones setting the rhythm. In a Western European orchestra, it's the conductor counting 
counting the beat on the podium in front of the orchestra. But for the Gagaku Orchestra, the show is actually the ones who are setting the, setting the tempo of the repertoires. How it's done is that, as I said, um, the show, you can, you can make sound on the show while breathing in or breathing out. The point where you change the breath from breathing in to breathing out or vice versa, that point is called kigae. All of the instrumentalists um, hear the swelling towards the kigae. And that is, I guess you can say that that is one cycle of um, the breath that people are um, keeping conscious about. And then so as they would hear the cycle of the breath mm-hmm. going, they would kind of feel a, like a tempo or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you can call it a tempo. That's amazing. So you really have to be, like, if you're playing in that ensemble, you really have to be listening mm. as that cycles in and out. Because I feel like maybe if you were zoning out, you'd miss it. Because with mm-hmm. our, you know, you're not looking for the conductor waving his arm and spacing out and then seeing it out of the corner. Oh, okay, that's beat four. I'm coming in on one. But with that, I'm mm. like, wow, what, what focus you'd have to have to just really be connected. And yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. cool. <laughs> have, have, you have you guys heard of um, the different time identity theories? Ooh, not off the top of my head. Yeah, not that I can think of. <laughs> okay, that that is great. That is great because um, it's something. <laughs> it's something that I've published um, this year, and the Ooh. fact that you haven't heard of it means that I haven't copied anyone else's concepts. <laughs> <laughs> like just a deep sigh, like I'm in the clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was worried. I was like. I have a PhD. Uh, maybe I should know this answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad that you guys didn't know about this because um, it's not it's not a popular theory in music theory or musicology um, because in academia around the world, including East Asia, um, music education is of course heavily based on Western music. We mm-hmm. learn the 18th century and onwards um, European music theory in our curriculums in conservatories and universities all around the world. This concept of time identity. So I've been going to a lot of underground noise shows in Tokyo when I was a college student. And oh, sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, they were really uh, something very different from um, what I write on the score, what I notate on the score nowadays. Absolutely. Um, I remember hearing noise music yeah. for the first time. And I'm just thinking mm-hmm. for our listeners, if you've never heard what noise music is, throw it into Google and click YouTube, find something. And it's, it's really just, it will transform your perspective on music. And this, in noise music, I really felt a different time flow of music. Like it's not the same with a European orchestra, for example. So, um, but at that time, I still didn't have enough vocabularies and knowledge to explain my concepts of different time flows. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was, you know, digging deeper into compositions. Um, in this case, I'm talking about compositions of European orchestral instruments um, notated on the five-line Western notation system, while simultaneously exploring, you know, gagaku music too. And I really saw this clear time identity differences um, between the European music and the gagaku music 
So I'm not a musicologist, but um, I thought perhaps theorizing the different time identities that I have encountered from a compositional or notational perspective, um, it's, it's possible. It just has a different um, time identity. I call the, the post-Baroque conventional Western notation systems uh, time identity, a metronomic time identity. And um, I call the Gagaku um, time a chronometric time identity. Mm. Yeah, as a Western art music composer, I have a lot of difficulties actually um, notating the show on Western notation system just mm. because this time flow, um, it just can't be notated. It can't fit into the Western notation system. So I mean, I feel like Western notation so rigid, um, which I mean, someone could argue with me about that and we could definitely talk till we were blue in the face, but traditional Western notation, when you think about it, is just super rigid. I mean, I immediately think mm. four, four, three, four, and you can go crazy with the meters all you like, but the, the basis of that is there's still a meter involved. Um, so yeah, mm. sorry, I'm just like trying to think how I would do it. My brain's like trying to look for ideas and like, oh, I'd really have to spend some time on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ones that I listed, the metronomic and the chronometric, it's um, around the world. I'm sure that um, there are just many, many other time identities that um, we just haven't encountered yet, or we just don't know about it. We're just um, not educated in that um, in that path. So yeah, it's really a um, exploration, knowing different music, different cultures. I mean, that's kind of one reason, that's the main reason, one of the reasons we have this podcast is just to educate, not just ourselves, but anyone interested, you know, we, we liken it to a buffet, you know, <laughs> like, mm. uh, there's so much out there. It's just, you got, can't just live off of McDonald's and the same thing <laughs> over time, uh, you know? I know, I think I wasn't really introduced or I just kind of had no idea. You don't know what you don't know until I took like a world music class my senior year in my undergrad. And then after that, I felt like my head cracked open and I was like, oh my gosh, I've only even like looked at the surface of what's out there. <laughs> it's very humbling, but also really exciting because you think, okay, there's, like I said, there's so many more different things we can pull in and learn and explore um, that quote unquote have already been done, but how can we blend these together or pull new things from them or see them from different cultural perspectives? I'm really excited to see where your time theory goes. <laughs> yeah. And so because of your uh, chronometric and metric time ideas, I mean, how do you, because you do use, use the show in actual contemporary composition. So mm -hmm. how do you combine that, those kinds of ideas? Okay. That's a really good question. And it's, I think it's the most difficult question that you've asked me today. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, first of all, um, as I touched on um, just a bit, I view, I view contemporary music as Western art music. Um, I'm sure that there are many differing opinions on this, but uh, I view the modern day Western art music as a development of what used to be, you know, the classical or Baroque or um, we can even go further back into the Roman, Roman and Greek music, um, this music lineage. If 
we can use that term has really transformed over time in the areas of plantation or rhythm, culture surrounding the music and so on. But uh, when we look at show, for example, um, it has been used in the context of Kagaku for more than 1300 years. And uh, although throughout history, there were um, minor changes, such as the tempo of the repertoires or the instrumentation used in Gagaku orchestras, I think it's fair to say that show, um, I think I can explain it this way. Um, show has been respectfully fulfilling its duty in the Gagaku orchestra. And while a European orchestral instrument has been going on adventures, Today's European orchestral instruments, for example, let's say the cello or a violin, it really makes sense for Lachenmann to use certain techniques uh, because there is already a philosophical, cultural, and aesthetical grounds to that. Whereas um, if we, if we want to use the show in the context of Western art music, that actually means that we suddenly hit the wall of questions asking us, why are we using the show and not other instruments like the harmonica or the pipe, uh, pipe organ? Um, right. We right. use non-traditional techniques on the show, not found in Gagaku. Then the questions are, what are the reasons for that? Those questions are really difficult to answer. I don't think I have an answer uh, to your question, how do you fuse, you know, the show and contemporary music? But uh, it's just something that we have to keep trying, keep experimenting. The show was first reintroduced, or introduced, I should say, into the context of Western art music in the 1950s, the post-war period. Okay. And it's not even a hundred years since then. But when we look at um, Western orchestral instruments, how it's been used in the compositional context. Um, it has a longer history. So I feel like it's now is the time where composers are really trying to figure out a way, experimenting with the instruments, not of the European orchestral instruments. And to, to borrow your verse, uh, combine to fuse it into the Western art music. When the first time I heard it, it's kind of mind-boggling. It kind of, you know, something I had never heard before, and it was, sounded so different. I don't want to say alien because, but you know, it was alien to someone who's not uh, familiar with that kind of environment, with that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the instruments of Asia. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, I I do agree with you. Um, when we hear Gagaku music, it's not just the non-Japanese people, but also people in Japan who think it's new to borrow your words different from what we're familiar with. Because, unfortunately, we are so out of touch from our own heritage music. To my ears, too, the very first time that I heard Gagaku live, it was really shocking. It was really... Um, a new experience for me. When I look at, because you have some pieces that you've put up on YouTube and things, you use this, you know, our standard, the Western classical standard, um, five lines and things, but there, you always use a lot of 
free kind of time like uh, so I would, I would assume that you're kind of using the the Western classical ideas and then fusing that with your uh, chronometric time ideas. Yeah, to me, um, I find, I know it's a subjective term, but I, I'll use this word beauty. I find beauty in this chronometric time identity. It's more freeing. Um, it's more natural to me to hear. It's, I guess I can say that it's more natural it gives more freedom to the to the performers too, which is very important for me when I'm composing uh, contemporary music. You know, we just recently interviewed uh, Sean Head, mm -hmm. and he was talking about with Shakuhachi. There's so many open elements to it. So whether you're playing, I can't remember the word he used for what F, but he's like, if I want to play that pitch, mm -hmm. I have like five different ways of actually playing that pitch in just the pitch itself, mm. you know, and then uh, he has all these other choices he can make as to, um, you know, volume and mm. attack breathiness of the pitch. Mm. And so I, I, this must be, I mean, on one side as a composer, I'm just like, Oh, that sounds like such a fresh breath of air to be able to just like hand over some of that responsibility to the performers Mm -hmm. uh, but then as a performer, it terrifies me, <laughs> you know, cause that's a lot of responsibility. You know, you grow up learning not to put your own aesthetic into it and you just write or you play what's written down on the page. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was also classically trained and, um, I also feel like, um, classical music nowadays, it's very, it's really all about playing what's written on the score mm -hmm. um there aren't too much areas where you can just explore and uh show your colors as musicians compared to other uh genres but when we really think about the time when classical music even baroque or uh, before that the music that we rigorously follow the scores today um there were a lot of improvisations happening uh during the time of mozart or beethoven yeah, they were known as great improvisers on the piano. Right. Yeah, so I think it's very important to um, really perhaps um, go back and actually know that um, it's okay to um, give more freedom to the performers. It doesn't really have to be this really rigorous, rigid um, read off the score and play perfectly what's written on the score. Yeah, I would think it'd be kind of akin to uh, jazz performance in that, you know, they have like their standard, you know, you know, they have mm -hmm. charts that they need to learn and things, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's all of me or, you know, and, mm -hmm. but then they're given so much freedom, you know, during with the solo sections or whatever, or even, you know, you hear all of me and there's 50 different versions of that one piece, you know, it's interesting that in like, there's not 50 different versions of, uh, Eine kleine Nachtmusik or mm -hmm. Symphony Number no. 5 by Beethoven or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like for even for Gagaku music, um, the tempo isn't set. So we don't really have the, we don't have a tempo indication or we don't have a time signature in an equivalent sense of um, uh, European art music. We okay. do have a time signature, but it's, 
very different. It time can fluctuate on the third and the fourth beats. Um, so it's a very different concept of time. Um, what does that mean? That means um, um, each performance of the same piece can have different lengths. I, I remember having kind of that conversation in my doctorates and like, well, I kind of want to let the performers just take their time and, you know, like mm -hmm. not write down, dictate all of the, you know, crescendi and decrescendi and uh, where they go to and stuff, you know, mm. for people interested in the instrument, what should they know about writing it into a contemporary classical music? Okay. Um, that is another very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there isn't a correct answer uh, for that. Um for people interested in composing for show, I believe that, you know, listening to Gagaku repertoires is a good start. And, you know, aside from knowing the notation, the fingering and all the other technical points, um, again, I'd like to stress the importance of different time flows in different music or different instruments. When I'm talking about time identities, I bring this topic into linguistics to um, different languages. As I said before, I lived in a lot of countries, different countries. So I speak several languages and um, languages are really, really intertwined with cultures. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of pauses in between conversations or in between words in the Japanese language, in the Japanese uh, communication culture, so to speak. And when we look at Japanese music, for example, there are a lot of silence in between sounds. I mean, silence is, we put more importance on silence than, let's say, French music of the 18th century. That's very specific. Oh, you can um, say Americans at that. <laughs> or Americans, yeah. But then um, when I speak English in the United States, having silence in between words, it's considered awkward. It's just a cultural difference. Very. Yeah. Um, in Japan, if we just keep, keep talking, uh, people might think that you're not as smart or you're shallow. Oh, wow. In many cases. But that's not the case in the United States. It's actually the opposite um, from my experience. If you have a lot of silences in between words and sentences, then people won't take you too seriously. Yeah, so languages are really intertwined with cultures. And I do see many similarities in um, the music which um, sprouted out from the land where the cultures and the, the languages are there. So I don't know I'm, if, if you have... If you have the time and the motivation, perhaps learning learning Japanese could be could be one big step to really understanding the different time identities used in gagaku music. Yeah, I was thinking about how I had a, a one of my good friend's father was a philosophy professor, mm. and he liked to take time as he spoke to really collect his words. Mm. And, you know, in speech classes that we have to take, we're told to, if you need to take a pause, gather yourself mm. and, and then say what you need to say. Mm. Um, 
rather than doing what I do a lot and just say, um, a lot. And so, <laughs> you know, whereas you get out into the world and you start talking um, and people just want to go, 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 you know, and if mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's this kind of sweet spot where you're not talking super fast, mm-hmm. so it doesn't feel like you're, you know, selling someone something mm-hmm. or trying to, you know, throw a blanket over their eyes, but you're mm-hmm. not taking so much time within your speech pattern that you, people start losing interest, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of how that correlates to American music. We've got in C, you know, mm-hmm. the piece in C. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got, of course, minimalism and the constant perpetual motion of some American music. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then on the other spectrum, you've got George mm-hmm. Crumb, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, his pieces, they have definite silence, you know, there's, mm-hmm. Uh, it's metered. So, well, it's metered in the way that it's like four seconds of silence or mm-hmm. 12 seconds, you know? Yeah. And the silence is used as a technique rather than something else. And so I just thought that was really interesting. I never really kind of thought collaborated those ideas together, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. The show and um, your aesthetic. Uh, I mean, you just, even the way you speak, mm-hmm. you're very, you know, paced, excuse me, you take time, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, thought out. So with, um, I, I believe you sent us a, an MP3 of a piece and that has in itself like breaks between the parts, mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. Um, the show and its interacting instruments. And I saw another one with a show in viola, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember like the show would play a chord that built up and then it kind of stopped and evaporated into the ether and then the viola came in with its own voice. Uh, and just how those all mixed together, I thought was, you know, a very beautiful Thank you. combination. I found a very interesting thing. Um, I think it was in 2018, um, two years ago, that I did um, an extensive spectral analysis of the sounds of the show. And I was fascinated to find out that the um, spectral analysis showed that the sound of the show is very similar um, to the sound of a viola with a rubber mute on. So, yeah, that was the reason that I chose these two instruments was the show and a viola with the rubber mute on.
So, all right, wonderful. Uh, it was so nice talking to you, Chitori, about the show. Yeah, um, thank you so much. And thank you for being so flexible and working with us. Uh, we're going to do a little kind of what we call the after party. So if anyone wants to listen to those, make sure you're signed on to our Patreon. Um, and uh, you can listen to our after party interview and further discussion with uh, Chitori um, about everything from the show to composition to um, a piece. So uh, sign on and we'll talk to you then. All right, thanks. Ha, <laughs> ha,